Cheer a bang, Lucy. I heard nothing. Oh, that's funny. I could have sworn I heard a bang. It says here, if the Chinese go on increasing, there'll not be enough food left to go round. Well, someone ought to tell them Chinese to stop it. Well, why don't you? They might take notice. Hey, look at that. Plaster. I told you I heard a bang. I wonder what's keeping our Arthur and our Jenny upstairs. You worry about the Chinese. You'll have enough to be going on with. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and I am glad to report that we are going to be doing what this show does best. Does that mean we're going to be doing an official episode album review, Sam? Well, kind of yes and no. That all really depends on your point of view. But regardless, what we're going to be doing today is shining a light on a slightly more obscure and ill-mentioned part of Paul McCartney's career. Possibly the most obscure, actually. And rather than just calling this a bonus episode, I'm going to go ahead and make another needless brand new side series for this podcast. Welcome to what I'm going to affectionately and semi-officially, unofficially dub the Catch-Up Series. Yes, I thought that it would be best that we make use of all this extra free time to do some literal spring cleaning for the podcast by catching up with some of the topics that I really should have touched on at some point by now, especially if you've been following the chronology of the show. So far, we've skipped past the Thrillington album, The Wings' greatest compilation, and even give my regards to Broad Street, both the film and the album, which is also like today's episode, a film and an album. We're going to be discussing... We're going to be discussing The Family Way. For those of you wondering just how overdue this episode is, well, it could be argued that it should have been done as episode one, even before there was an episode one, because The Family Way did come out in January 66, during the middle of the Beatles' career. So, in a way, it would have also broken the podcast's No Beatles policy that we set out with. Obviously, I've gone on to break that rule very frequently ever since, and... Honestly, I guess I just wanted to get onto as quickly as possible albums like McCartney and Ram and Wildlife, which I think is understandable, if you ask me. I've always known about this soundtrack. The album cover has always been burned into my mind, and I'm just so glad that I'm now taking the time to remove this this huge weight from around my neck. Because, quite frankly, folks, I've had a lot more fun with the material than I thought I was going to, and some of the stories that I've cropped up from this album have been incredibly interesting as well and I can only hope the same can be said for you by the end of this. Like I said this is a proper episode of sorts but it the content itself is a little less substantial than we're used to so I don't think it warrants one of our regular two-parters. So just like in the earliest days of this podcast I'll be doing a summary of the album and its song-by-song review in the same episode. Yeah we're going retro. So, like I say, I will detail the history of the album and its recording and all of the facts for you first, 
and then just like a regular episode I'll bring on a very special guest in order to help me discuss the album song by song as well as the film of the same name. But before we do any of that let's crack on with the matter of the housekeeping. First of all, if you want to get in contact with the show, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I would love to read out your McCartney stories here on the show, folks. That's something I've been having a lot of fun with right now. Anything tangentially or loosely related to Paul, whether you've met him, whether you've met someone who knows him, whether you've met someone who knows someone who knows him, you've seen him live, he plays music, anything, I'm sure you know what your McCartney story is, and I'd love to read it out on here. Or maybe you just want to say hi, drop me an email, paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. For more direct and fast and maintained contact, you can follow us on the Twitter, that's the central hub for the show, that's at McCartneyPod. Check out the blog as well. I've put some new stuff there recently during all this COVID lockdown. That's www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. That's where I put up extra bonus articles and it's where many episodes of this show also start out. Find us on YouTube by typing in Paul McCartney Pod or Paul or Nothing. And last but certainly not least, folks, please check out our Patreon page. Link's down below for that. That's www.patreon.com slash McCartneyPod and... Yeah, look, you all know what Patreon is. I've told you about it a million times. It's the way that you can help support the show, help keep the lights running, help keep the show ad-free. And hey, many of the episodes that we actually do get funded directly by you through Patreon, like our Yesterday review, many of our book reviews and extra vinyls and stuff that I need for episodes. All of that is purchased through the Patreon page. If you like the show, if you like all the work that I've been doing and you want to show some sort of appreciation for that, but you can't, then please throw me a couple of quid or a couple of dollars a month down the internet. I can't believe I have the small number of patrons that I already do have, but hey, every little helps, and I'm always excited to see the show expand in new and exciting ways, and by God, do I need a new mic. Yeah, Patreon links down below. Housekeeping's over. Let's crack on with Family Way History. So, I'm sure many of you might be asking, what the hell is the Family Way anyway, eh? Well, the short answer, and most commonly known answer, is that it was Paul McCartney's soundtrack to the film of the same name in 1966, and it was also the first record put out by any of the solo Beatles. Now, whilst that is mostly true, we're also going to be taking the chance with this episode to dispel a couple of the myths surrounding this album. The plot of the film itself follows the misadventures of newlyweds Arthur and Jenny Fritton after their honeymoon is cancelled, they're forced to live in with Arthur's parents, and the lack of privacy in their lives leads to the marriage being unconsummated. That means they haven't had sex yet. Because of this, they fall prey to the sexual, societal and familial pressures of northern 1960s England. The film also follows both sets of parents as they try to pull the strings in secret and avoid gossipy neighbours. But before The Family Way was a soundtrack album, it was a film, and before it was a film, it was a play, and before it was a play, it was a teleplay. The Family Way was the brainchild of lauded playwright Bill Norton. For those of you who aren't familiar with Norton's work, his most famous piece is the play Alfie, which later on to become the classic Michael Caine film and the less iconic Jude Law remake. The first time the public were introduced to the story featured in The Family Way was in the 1961 broadcast on British TV show Armchair Theatre. The programme was a dramatic variety show with different writers, 
coming in each week to give a new story. Writers including Harold Pinter and Alan Owen, for whom would go on to write the screenplay for A Hard Day's Night. In this first incarnation of the story, though, it was called Honeymoon Postponed, and that's all I can find on it, sadly. Then, for reasons unknown, Norton was seemingly unsatisfied with this first attempt at his story, and so he adapted the teleplay into a regular old play for the stage. The original production was performed at the Mermaid Theatre in London 1963, where it achieved moderate success with around 20 shows, before then subsequently transferring to the Phoenix Theatre. I'm not sure if they were affiliated, but I also found a production of The Family Way performed at the Arts Theatre in Ipswich, Suffolk, that ran from the 8th to the 19th of October 63. This production was only notable and probably only found it because it did indeed star Sir Ian McKellen in the role of Arthur Fritton. Then, presumably after a few good reviews here and there, the production packed up and moved to Broadway, where it ran for an admirable 44 performances between February and March 1965. Again, it continued to perform incredibly well with audiences and critics alike, going on to receive a Tony Award for Best Lead Actress, as well as nominations for two further Best Featured Actress awards. But still, that success clearly was not enough for Norton, because if it was, we wouldn't be here today, would we? Now, there is a part of me that wonders whether the nearly $20 million in 1960s money that Alfie made may have spurned on this adaptation, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and it's just that maybe he felt or was told that the story had a mass appeal and that it would do financially well as a film. Either way, Norton went ahead like so many playwrights do and adapted his own play for the screen whilst it was still being performed on Broadway. Now, sadly, I haven't seen a production of this play, and I haven't been able to find any detailed notes or a performance on YouTube or anything, so I don't know if there were any major differences between, say, the teleplay, the play, and the family way. But regardless, he had a hot script that a lot of people wanted. One of those people was actor John Mills, who, upon seeing a production of The Family Way, offered Norton to buy the film rights then and there. However, Norton had to confess to the actor that he had already sold the film rights to the Bolting Brothers. However, this wasn't a total loss for John Mills, as he would go on to maintain an involvement with the project in so far that he would actually go on to star in it and steal the show in the role of Ezra Fritton, Arthur's father. Speaking of the Bolting Brothers, the chaps who bought the rights, they were a very respectable pair of movie-making twins, who remind me a lot of Joel and Ethan Cohen, as presumably because of union laws and stuff like that, they regularly swapped the role of producer and director. That, of course, is just on paper, and we can safely assume that on set, both brothers directed and both brothers acted as producers. McCartney's involvement... The period in which McCartney enters this story was a period of relative peace in the Beatles' world. It was just after their last ever tour, and during the break between the recording of Revolver and Sgt Pepper. So you can argue that this is the Fab Four at their peak. So, as a reward for being the best fucking band ever, they all got two months vacation, slash holiday, to do with whatever they will. With this time off, George Harrison went and spent some time in India and absorbed some Indian music with Ravi Shankar. Ringo spent some overdue quality time with his wife and young family. 
John went off to Spain to film his minor role in Richard Lester's How I Won the War, and Paul, supposedly, as the story goes, spent this time writing and creating the music for The Family Way. I wasn't able to find much information on the formalities and the legalities of how Paul became involved with the project, and I kind of just assumed that the reason he picked this one was a subconscious one that paralleled his own awkward live-in situation with Jane Asher and her own parents. However, after a bit of digging, though, I did find an interview with McCartney in Second Disc magazine back in 2011, and Macca describes the situation as thus. The directors, the Bolting brothers, actually approached me. One of them, Roy, was interested in the music I'd been writing. He said, would you be interested in doing something for the film? And I said, well, great honour. And they were very good directors, very famous English directors, and I knew they'd be good, so I knew the film would be good. So I said... Yeah, okay. And just like that, McCartney was on board. Despite having found himself with two months free, he now had a project to fill in that time between Beatle outings. Now, going into this episode, I would have assumed that McCartney, being the workaholic that we know him to be, would have set the whole thing up as a way to ensure that he had plenty to do across the two months. However, there's a part of me that feels like he's only doing this because he's realised that all of his Beatle friends have something to do and they're all doing it on their own and they're showing this independence. And maybe this is entirely my own projection, but I kind of get the impression that the ever-competitive Paul decided to work on a soundtrack specifically purely for the fact that John was acting in a film. Though, ironically, many years later, when speaking with Yoko, Paul found out that John was actually especially upset by this decision from Paul, as he felt that it was okay for him to act in a movie separately from the Beatles, because that wasn't music, but songwriting was sacred and still should have been done together. Who knows, perhaps the start of the Beatles' breakup may have a seed or two right here. However, this seems like it was some pretty good timing on the Balting Brothers' part, as it seems that Paul had film school set in his sights for a while as a little concept, so it's all quite serendipitous, really, as he details here in an interview during the anthology era. If you're blessed with the ability to write music, you can turn your hand to various forms. I've always admired the people for whom it's a craft. The great songwriting partners of the past, such as Rodgers and Hammerstein or Cole Porter, I've always admired the fact that they can write a musical and they can do a film score. So film scores were an interesting diversion for me. And with George Martin being able to write and orchestrate and being pretty good at it, I got an offer through the Balsing Brothers for him and me to do some film music for The Family Way. I had a look at the film and thought it was great. I still do. It's very powerful and emotional. Soppy, but it's good for me. I wanted big brass band music, because with the Beatles, we got into a lot of different kinds of music, but maybe brass band was a little too northern and hovis. I still loved it. My dad had played a trumpet and his dad had been in a brass band, so I had those leanings. For the film, I got something together that was sort of brassy bandy, to echo the northerness of the story, and I had a great time. So, as we can see from here, McCartney is already setting his sights rather high by wanting to compare himself to Rodgers and Hammerstein and Cole Porter, a.k.a. some of the biggest show tune writers of all time. And so, surely with his... And so, with such lofty expectations, Paul is obviously going to do everything in his power to live up to such a standard, right? Well, let's see... Recording the album, 
Even though the Family Way soundtrack was created during the height of the Beatles' fame, there are oddly scant recording details or anecdotes surrounding its production. That being said, what we do know for a fact is that McCartney's name was plastered all over the final product, and receives final credit as the writer-composer for the lot. Now, I'm sorry for any McCartney purists out there, and I know that you do listen, you sycophantic gits, but the truth of the matter is... Paul McCartney did fuck all work on this album. Of course, on this podcast we will eventually be tackling all of McCartney's later orchestral work, you know, albums like Working Classical, Liverpool, Oratorio, Standing Stone. These are all projects that I'm extremely looking forward to. As again, you know, it's going to be covering a part of McCartney's career that hardly anyone talks about. And so, in turn, I was looking forward to discovering McCartney's process and thinking behind this album. But, sadly folks, we're not going to get any of that, because at the end of the day, we can barely call this a Paul McCartney album at all. Now, I didn't say he didn't do anything for the album, just that the division of labour has been hilariously misquoted in the history books. The original plan for this album was always going to be for Paul to write the music, and George Martin would then in turn reinterpret it and make it suitable for the big screen with an orchestra. A great plan, in theory, and that's more or less how it played out, but not in the way that Martin would have hoped. Once McCartney had signed on to the project, it seems like he was initially rather enthusiastic about the whole thing, and it didn't take him long before he had handed George Martin the main theme for The Family Way. This was a good start, and Martin went ahead with doing his thing, and stretching the short scrap of music into what I imagine was around 10 to 15 minutes of different themes. But this was not going to fill up an entire album, was it? And yeah, whilst a score doesn't need a whole studio album's worth of new music, Martin could only do so much with that one theme, and it wasn't long before he would be hounding McCartney for more material. And I do mean hounding, folks, as detailed here in Howard Soon's Fab and Intimate Life of Paul McCartney. It reads, George Martin had to pester Paul for the briefest scrap of a tune to start the family way. George said, If you don't give me one, I'm going to write one of my own. And that did the trick. He gave me a sweet little fragment of a waltz tune, and with that I was able to complete the score. This idea is continued in John Blaney's Lennon-McCartney Together Alone, which reads, I told Paul, and he said he'd compose something. I waited, but nothing materialised, and finally I had to go round to Paul's house and literally stand there until he composed something. So, why did Martin have to continually chase up McCartney like a naughty schoolboy who hasn't done his homework? Well, my hypothesis is that Paul signed up to do this whole soundtrack without having any prior knowledge or done the requisite research into looking at what work goes into a score. I mean, writing a song is all well and good, but films are constantly changing during production. New scenes are shot, different things need to be represented musically, new stingers and cues are needed at a moment's notice. And, if anything, a director and editor should have too much score to use, allowing them to pick the cream of the crop. If you want more proof as to how much a film's production can change, 
Look no further than the family way itself, for at the time of McCartney signing on, it was originally titled Wedlocked, and would go through several other titles, presumably one of them being All In Good Time, until finally settling on The Family Way. So, Paul bashes out the main theme, and I bet you he thought he was done for the day, and was planning on enjoying his two-month holiday. Now, this doesn't sound like our typical workaholic McCartney, and... The only excuse I can find is an unverified claim that he had some form of writer's block, but I can't find any further proof of this. Uh, please do let me know if you know any more information about that. Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Ultimately, though, the fact that there are so few stories about this time, and the fact that Macca himself rarely, if ever, talks about it, kind of makes me feel like he doesn't have any positive memories around this time and just didn't want to do it. In all likeliness, he had signed a contract by this point and was forced to do the bare minimum rather than what he initially wanted. Or maybe perhaps at this point he kind of realised that they were using his name for marquee value and perhaps he lost interest there. Who knows? It was also during these two months off when Paul started dabbling in tape loops and hanging out in the London experimental scene, becoming the first avant-garde Beatle. That would, of course, only further distract him from his duties. And then he would also go to Paris for four days to see John on one of his own breaks from filming. So, with all of this atop of his relationship with Jane Asher and being an incredibly famous celebrity and judging the on beauty contest, no doubt, it's no wonder that George Martin had to do what he did. And what did he do exactly? Well, he pretty much wrote the whole bloody album. That's what he did. Yes, folks, this is a 90% accredited George Martin album. Yes, Paul may have given him these fragments and doodles that we hear so much about, but Martin never even goes into detail as to how long these are. These could have been seconds long for all we know. And the work required on Martin's part just dwarfs Paul's in every aspect. Martin would have to take one of these fragments, interpret it, orchestrate it, arrange it, turn it into a song, and then record that and mix that, and then you have to you know, repeat the same process each time, coming up with something new and interesting uh, to reinterpret and rearrange the track again, you know, and then to fill in the blanks and come up with incidental music and work with all the musicians and then put the whole thing together in the final mix. If you ask me, that sounds like a whole lot of work. As far as I can tell, the only other input Macca had on the project was, as he mentioned, the inclusion of this big thingy-mabob-esque brass band. Aside from that, I have no evidence that Paul was even present for the recording sessions. Those sessions took place from the 15th to the 18th of December and were held at CBT Studios in London. I mean, we're going to get into my review with my guests later on, but the fact of the matter is, folks, if there is any negativity towards the music, or even thrown remotely in the direction of George Martin in this episode, do not take it to heart. I am more aware that Martin did his best with what he was given, and this album, in terms of its sound, is, of course, up to that same high standard. But he was essentially conducting the whole thing with his hands tied behind his back. I can guarantee you all that if Macca had thrown a few more tunes his way, a few more original McCartney melodies, it would be infinitely more highly regarded than it is now. 
Going back to John Blaney's book for a moment, there is a little excerpt that I haven't read or heard about anywhere else that indicates that we can give even less credit to McCartney for writing this song than previously thought. George Martin continues, John was visiting and advised a bit, but Paul created a tune and played it on guitar. I listened and wrote it down. So, even one of the two songs that Paul did compose here, folks, still had input from John Lennon, and maybe even from George Martin there as well. Perhaps instead of writer's block then, perhaps Paul simply was just in a bit over his head with this project and didn't particularly know what to do. Maybe he was missing the Lennon-McCartney relationship, like Paul is okay writing the occasional solo song, but at this point he and John are still kind of writing, not eye to eye, but they are still very much the strong duo. And perhaps this is just a sign that McCartney is just not quite ready to compose on his own without John at least being involved in the project. Just to give a shout out as well to the other contributors on this album, we have Neville Mariner, who was the conductor, so he would have been instructing all of the musicians live, and those musicians were all dubbed the Minstrel Band. All in all, these sessions were so fraught with fuckery, though, that the final score was only delivered to the filmmakers a couple of weeks before the premiere. Release and single! The Family Way hit cinemas in the December of 1966 here in the UK, and June 1967 over in the US. Though, being part of a comparatively niche market compared to Beatles' product, it wasn't as widely released across the world. So it was only shown in the UK, US, Australia and New Zealand, aka all of the English-speaking territories. Now, the film itself did very well. Not Alfie well, but it still made several million dollars both here in the UK and in the US, again in 1960s money, including a reported $2 million in home rentals in the US. And, according to IMDb, I couldn't back this up, The Family Way, the film, won every award it was nominated for. But, how did the soundtrack do? Well, as a junior, shall we say, vinyl collector, I've now noticed that you can very easily tell how well something sold back in the day by how cheap and readily available the vinyl is in the present day. So, if it's really cheap and you can find loads of copies of it, chances are loads of people bought it and have saturated the present market. And let's just have a quick look on eBay. Uh, uh, oh shit, it's between 75 and 225 pounds, folks. I.e. between 100 and 300 dollars. Yeah, we can automatically assume that this thing didn't exactly sell out. According to chartmasters.org, who have been a great little resource for this show lately, uh, this album only sold around 100,000 copies, which is so little that it didn't actually chart anywhere at all. It seems McCartney's marquee value was far more useful for the film then, eh? I mean, could you imagine if any of Macca's solo albums after the Beatles sold this badly? At least in the 70s and 80s. I mean, this is ten times as bad as pressed to play. Yeah. Luckily, McCartney's ego would be somewhat saved by winning an Ivor Novello Award for Love in the Open Air. Either way, even if he hadn't have won his seventh major songwriting award, though, I hazard a guess that he would have been far too busy working on the Magical Mystery Tour and dealing with the death of Brian to care. 
Now, Sam, surely you mean Sgt. Pepper, right? That's 1966. One of the reasons this album may not have sold as well as one would have hoped for, you know, being the first non-Beatle album for a Beatle during the tenure of the Beatles, is the fact that the album was not available at the time of the film's release. All tie-ins are best employed as closely as possible to the primary media source in order to capitalise on any hype or momentum the property has. However, the Family Way soundtrack only hit the shelves on the 6th of January 1967. For those of you who haven't done the maths already, the result meant that if you actually did like the Family Way and its music at the time of release, if you were an American, you would have to have waited six months to hear it, and if you were English... The fucking target demographic of this film, don't forget folks, you would have had to have waited over a year to buy this soundtrack album. A year, everyone. But why did the album come out so late, I hear you ask? Well, the reason is that obviously there wasn't just an album, there was a single due to be released alongside of it that threw a bit of a Spaniard into the works, if you know what I mean. The single chosen was the A-side, Love in the Open Air, the song that won the Ivan Novello Award, and the B-side was going to be the theme from The Family Way. But, stranger than the song choice here, is the fact that this single had not one, but two releases here in the UK. They both had the same name, they were near identically the same song, and if that's not confusing enough, they were also released on the same day, sometimes in the same shops. Brilliant. The story goes that Decca, the UK distributor for this soundtrack, wanted to put out the single in 1966, but George Martin disagreed with this release as he felt that the recordings destined for the album were not up to scratch for a single release that's going to get a lot of radio airplay. Martin proposed that he would re-record the two tracks with his own team, dubbed simply as the George Martin Orchestra. And despite how potentially lucrative this album and single could have been, Decker actually had to relent and delay the release of the album. Though I'm sure having Paul McCartney on his side certainly helped. But this sealed the fate of the album and its single to be one that would not sell and would end up more as a valued collector's piece than anything else. Finally, folks, just before we move on, The Family Way has been reissued a couple of times since though only in 2015 for the US Record Store Day re-release has it actually been reprinted on vinyl. And no prizes at all for guessing that we have had no hints whatsoever for this to be part of any future McCartney Archive reissue either. Album cover? When it comes to this particular album cover, I'm not sure if it's a pure album cover design at all really. Obviously this is a film first and it's more likely than not that the origins for this image, the text and the colours therein, were actually first implemented in designing the film's poster. So everything we see on the album cover is likely taken from the poster. And when I say poster I mean the film's main poster, the one that looks like the album artwork, not the ones that were part of a very strange experimental marketing campaign that was going on at the time. Although some of the posters, unlike the album cover, have a black background instead of the more recognisable green. So yeah, the image itself is a composite whereby we have the male and female gender symbols interlinked with pictures of Arthur and Jenny, our main characters, inside of the the circles with bold yellow text set against a bright green 
background. Some issues of the album have a slightly different coloured green, but that's a rabbit hole that I equally don't want to go down right now. There was also another cover that was used for the US release of the album on the London record label. This one, though, was much more of a typical affair with a still from the movie and this random blue tint and a please-please-me level of text on the front. It's nowhere near as good or as eye-catching, and I'm glad it didn't carry on to any of the future reissues. Something else I'm genuinely thankful for is the fact that this sleeve for The Family Way does not have Paul McCartney's face on the front of it. I mean, they could have. I'm sure it was tempting for them. And to compensate, his name is plastered as big as I'm sure they were tastefully allowed to make it. But, you know, there is a horrible alternative reality, isn't there, where this album boasts the cheesiest picture of cute Beetle Paul that you ever did see, possibly until Red Rose Speedway. Overall, not too much to say on this one. I do dig this album cover, probably because I've been storing it in the back of my mind for the last three years. But sadly, there isn't too much for me to overanalyze here with this segment, as there's not a lot of artistic intent here, and it's much more function than form. I've never seen the vinyl in person, but from the photos I've seen, it does look suitably striking with that bold green background, and I know that fans definitely would have been able to spot it amongst the other albums, you know, a year after the film came out. Critical Reception! Rather uniquely on this podcast episode, for the first time we have two releases to cover, which can mean that there's at least twice as many sources that I won't be able to find for each of them. As with all releases on this podcast that came out before the advent of the internet, first-hand accounts and direct sources are a little hard to come by. However, I did find a couple of contemporaneous write-ups, of the film at least. The first of these was found in the New York Times from June 29th, 1967, a little late, I know. The first of these was found in the New York Times from June 29th, 1967, and whilst it's not as a comprehensive a review as I would have liked, as it mostly focuses on the actors more than anything else, I did want to mention it as it gives an incredible and accurate shout-out to John Mills as Ezra Fritton. The article reads, Mr. Mills is a beautiful actor, as well as the real-life father of the fictional bride, and his presence lends the crucial proceeding a certain subtle professional felicity. Indeed, it is Mr. Mills' performance as a crude and cranky working man, compensating for his own inadequacies by ceaselessly putting down his sensitive son, that gives to this modest picture what body and substance it has. And I can only agree with that sentiment. Mills is absolutely killer in this film, though that write-up makes this story sound a lot more like Fences than I realised. Um, <laughs> anyway, secondly though, we have an earlier review taken from Variety magazine on December 1st, 1966. It reads, Hayley Mills gets away from her Disney image as the young bride, even essaying an undressed scene. Bennett is excellent as the sensitive young bridegroom, but it is the older hands who keep the film floating on a wave of fun, sentiment and sympathy. John Mills is a first class in the character role as the bluff father who cannot understand his son and produces the lower working class man's vulgarity without overdoing it. Avril Angers as the girl's acid mother and John Comer as her husband are equally effective, but the best performance comes from Marjorie Rhodes as John Mills' astute but understanding wife. 
And again, Rhodes as Mrs. Fritton, yeah, really understated, very quiet performance, but she commands a great power in that role. And so now we'll come on to all of the modern reviews of this film, certainly. Well, I would if, if I could find any. I, I really couldn't. Uh, almost everything that I could find on this film was either behind a paywall or was just recapping the plot, mentioning that McCartney was involved and saying that it's okay. So yeah, The Family Way, as a film, has more readily available surviving sources from the 60s than it does from the present day. No wonder no fucker has done an episode on this film or soundtrack yet. The only thing that I could find was a couple of reviews of modern performances of the play that point out that this particular film adaptation of the story does not contain the same tense drama of said live performance. Again, haven't seen the play, I'd love to, but since I haven't, I'm not going to comment too much, especially since the film does an absolutely stellar job of translating a stage story to the screen. Right, well, maybe we can fare a little bit better with some reviews for the album then, eh? Well, no. In contrast to the film, I literally cannot find a single review of the album from 1967, which is somewhat expected, but it doesn't get much better in the online world either. I went on the public forum, RateYourMusic.com, where we have a lot of correspondence on this show, and it only had six reviews, as opposed to the tens of dozens, sometimes hundreds of reviews that accompany the average McCartney album. Continued when I saw a couple of posts on the Steve Hoffman forums, again, another great Beatle discussion site, where they were doing these entire McCartney retrospectives, and before you could say, love in the open air, they had swiftly moved on to McCartney 1 and Ram, every damn day time. Though there was one comment on RateYourMusic.com that did make me laugh a little bit and might give us some indication for the album ahead. User Geldof Punk says, It's actually a fairly pleasant thing to listen to, but don't be expecting much from Paul here. Oh, and I hope you like hearing different takes on the same theme over and over again. Here's a little excerpt of the ever-popular AllMusic.com. It says, the whole project reflects McCartney's melodic and harmonic bents, as well as Martin's distinct orchestral personality, along with some commercial touches that definitely date this score as a product of the 1960s. There was another line from a retrospective review on popmatters.com that I wanted to touch on for a moment as well, and it says, Aside from the bonus track and Love in the Open Air, all other pieces are titled according to their cue name for the film a sign of the original record's slapdash nature. Now, I haven't touched on this point yet, but yeah, all of the songs on this album are titled in a very formal film score manner. Though up until the time I found this quote, I had no idea that that was a signal of the original soundtrack's slapdash nature, to quote that review there. I wish I could decipher those titles, but Google was no help, and none of my friends have composed an entire film score that I know of. So, if anyone here can translate these titles, then please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Now that we know what The Family Way was, it's about time we told you what we bloody think of it. And I did say we. I won't be doing this episode entirely on my lonesome. No, I'm going to be joined by someone who should be a familiar face for you lot by now. He accompanied us through the review of McCartney 2, 
Uh, he came with me on my trip to see Maka at the O2 in 2018. Most recently, he was on our Lisa the Vegetarian episode, which was absolutely fantastic. We had a lot of fun doing that one. Aside from being my general best friend, he's the host of Pun It, Battle Rap Resume, and Alpha Metallica. And he's going to talk classical with us today, folks. Everyone, Tom Quay. Tom, what's going on, man? Hey, Sam. So good to be back. Yeah, I forgot about the least of the vegetarian episode, actually. But that was a particularly good one. And it kind of balanced it out because we uh, there was some some uh, foggy Tom Waits episodes that recorded either side of that. So it, one shining light from that afternoon. Yeah, and we actually recorded that episode together, which was quite unique. Not that we can ever record episodes t- together again, seemingly, in this world that we're living in. Yeah, if, if Bill Gates gets his way, certainly not, no. 100%. Also, I just want to take a second to thank you for spreading my 2018 McCartney panic attack story on Alpha Metallica. Not once now, but twice. Well, it combines my two favorite things, the Beatles and your downfall. So if those are intertwined <laughs> in any way, I'm just going to wrap it on forever. Like, oh, You won't see me, bro. Uh, actually, speaking of Beatles, um, you are indeed a professional in the audiobook game. And you were actually telling me about a Beatle book you were working on recently? Yes, yes. So um, normally we tend to do sort of standard thrillers and a lot of Australian romances and stuff like that. So we record them in-house and edit them and package them and master them and put them out into the wider world and stuff like that. But, they're, you know, occasionally we do non-fiction biography sort of books. And I just saw this book. I saw the title of it before I saw anything else. And in the end, and, that, you know, that could have just been a coincidence or whatever. But then it was written by Ken McNabb who I think has done a fair few Beatles books as well. Mm-hmm. So this was this came out last year, but we recorded it only a few months ago. And yeah, it's kind of charting the final year of the Beatles, you know, you let it be Abbey Road sort of stuff. I took it. I didn't record it. I wanted to record it, but I uh, I proofed it as it were. So I took it home and listened to the whole thing. And, you know, any miswords or anything like that, I flagged that up to the studio. And it was okay. The problem is when you're, a spe- you know, we're spoiled with Lewisham, obviously Mark Lewisham is a god. <laughs> But especially post-Beatles podcast, like, there was nothing I really knew. The only thing that I learned about that I thought was quite interesting was um, Lennon and Yoko. I can't remember exactly who it was, but there was this guy who was, like, being sent to death row, and he'd, like, attacked and raped and killed people or whatever. But at the time, there was this grey area, like, the public were on his side, and I need, I need to look at who it was. But they got behind him, basically. But quite morbidly, it turned out that he was 100% guilty. So oh they, they were on the bandwagon of, of some psychopath. But, uh, yeah, in terms of, like, actual criticism and literature on the boys, it was nothing new. It's always fun to read and stuff like that. And, you know, but we know about Klein. You know what I mean? We know mm. about the biscuits, etc. Yeah, I mean, there, there is so much Beatle content that it almost makes more stuff seem like generic filler because, like, you know, how how much more can we know? But, you know, there is still so much stuff coming out. You know, we've got Paul Sally having a Jimmy McCulloch book soon. We've had uh, books on the Beatles in India recently or their final years, like you say. There's probably going to be a lot of Let It Be-based stuff coming out very soon. Is there any part of the Beatles story that you want to see covered a little more comprehensively in, like, a single book? Question. Um... I'm sure there are these kind of books out there, but I would like to see an exploration of of them, like the the instrumental solos in the band and stuff like that. Like, I know there are books about Paul as the bass player and John as the guitar player and stuff like that. And maybe just a kind of, like, why aren't there many guitar solos in Beatles songs when every other band were doing it? Like, obviously, they are a contrarian band. That's kind of why we love this. They, you know, they played instruments made by different brands and they just avoided any form of cliché. 
but just as someone who you know i'm quite passionate about instrumental music um i really enjoy those sort of endeavors so maybe something like that but that's kind of a boring answer to a good question i'll have to get back to you i, I don't know really like maybe um literary references in the beatles as well of which there's a few mm. and far between but something like that, like where, you know, touchstones of because we know they love all that old kind of soul music and whatever. But, you know, where are some references in there where they're talking about old characters from from law, you know, like a book called 101 Beatle References You Never Got or something like that. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yesterday is actually the name of some obscure Shakespeare character or something. Yeah, Ella Rigby was Ringo's real first name at birth. Um, <laughs> something I've actually noticed, though, is that even when you do scour through old Beatle books, you, you do actually don't mind going through the narrative you know, like another oh, God, time. Because no. it's the ultimate narrative. It's, it, it's the archetypal narrative. Like. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah, it's bigger than Jesus. Come on. It's crazy, isn't it? Because when you, even when you look back to, like, Joseph Campbell and the hero of A Thousand Faces and the idea of the monomyth, where do people emerge from? The caves? The cavern? Like, you know, were, was that being aped in some way? I don't know, Sam. Yeah, well, um, Liverpool, the pool of life, you know, it all stems back, man. Before we get on to the main business, though, can I get you to confirm on air that we are indeed going to be doing some Beatle puns on the next episode of Pun It? Yes, yes, we are. I mean, do your, do your listeners know about Pun It? Well, I'm sure you've mentioned it on here before, but um, for those who don't know, uh, obviously, Tom, you started a show called Pun It, which is a pun-based wordplay podcast. I've actually hosted it uh, as a guest host a couple of times now. Mm-hmm. We've got some big guests coming on soon as well, which is, is going to be pretty cool. We do, we do. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, basically the way it works is we take two abstract categories like, you know, Samuel L. Jackson films and British prime ministers or something like that. And <laughs> yeah, people have to come up with meldings of that. And obviously me and Sam are obsessed with the Beatles and we've often Beatle punned in our own time anyway. And obviously the Beatles are obsessed with puns, Lennon in particular. So it kind of made sense to merge the two. So, yes, in the next episode, I don't know whenever that's going to be and I don't know whenever this episode is going to come out. But we, you know, we'll, you will hear at least 15 mildly humorous Beatles puns. We haven't decided on the second category, though. You know, that could be a. Yeah, you know, you could have like Beatles and drinks and you'd have you won't see tea. You know, that's kind of yes. how, how the game works. Yes. Ex- yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. So, dude, one of the reasons I was excited to do this episode was the fact that you were the one that brought up the idea of doing the family way to me in the first place. And that was a bit. Uh, left field for me as far as I'm concerned mm. what was it about the family way that kind of inspired your interest always intrigued by it I was trying to think about how I found out about it and it must have been for some reason in my head it was in Mojo magazine I mean mm. it likely would have been in Mojo but I remember reading about it in a magazine and Mojo is the main one that I buy I'm actually subscribed to it now and you know inevitably they have the Beatles on the cover every year at least once normally more than once and I just, you know, as a passing reference to this thing, it's quite a good trivia question, isn't it? What was the first uh, bit of Beatles where they strayed outside the boundaries while they were still in the band? And this was it. Oh, God, there's this film called The Family Way, and Paul did the soundtrack, and George Martin helped. And I was just like, I was always like, oh, I'd love to watch that film. I'd love to hear that music. And um, it's funny, actually, because I was reading the... Uh, the all music review, uh, all music like calm, incredible, you know, veritable encyclopedic source there. And they were saying in their review how difficult it is to find. Obviously, now it's on Spotify. But I think at that time it wasn't on Spotify because I certainly would have sought it out. Maybe it would on YouTube and stuff. But, um, yeah, it was always kind of hanging around there and, you know, listening, as I say, to a lot of Beatles podcasts. I've never seen anyone cover it. So I figured it's, uh, it's you know, and fittingly for the subject matter as well, it's virgin territory. 
It's funny you should say that because I was looking at, you know, maybe see if the competition have done an episode on this and maybe I could glean a piece of trivia that I wouldn't have been able to find in my stack of McCartney books. But no, I couldn't steal or copy anything. This is literally going to be the first podcast on this very, very obscure McCartney album. Though I I honestly thought, dude, our next chat was going to be something like, um, you know, The Firemen or, you know, McCartney's more experimental stuff. I think we've said we were going to cover that, haven't we? Yeah, Yeah. so, I mean, any of kind of any anti-granny music i'm completely down with but you know you can uh, yeah you, you you can keep your broad straight and stuff like that yeah folks for those of you who may not know tom is the man who who has opinions so controversial that it bins an entire episode on wings over america so buckle up folks tom tom, tom i still don't get wings i still am kind of baffled by them but you know people we'll, we'll, love them, dude, we're in solo paul now it's solo paul yeah yeah it's now. another day this is this is way before yeah 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 are you a fan of classical music much do you know your vivaldi's from your shostakovich eye not really i'm a fan of references and history so i like to learn about players I do find classical music for the most part quite impenetrable i find it quite hard to focus um, I always think about, and I know you're not really watch much West Wing, but there's quite a famous scene in West Wing where where Bartlett, Martin Sheen, President Bartlett, mm-hmm. is is he's coming, he's speaking about witnessing a symphony or something, and he's like, I couldn't make head nor tails of it, but in the second act, suddenly the violins perked up and the oratorio did this and that, and that always intrigued me. I mean, there are certain people that I do really like. I like more piano led people. I, I love Debussy. Mm-hmm. I think Debussy's absolutely magnificent. I love Eric Sarte as well. I like a lot of the futurist composers like Alexander Mosolov and uh, I know Zappa really into Varese, uh, who I've got into Varese. I think he's called Varese. You know, those kind of ones that it's less green sleeves. It more sounds like a train straight into hell mm. like that. So, you know, Amadeus, love the movie recently that I watched for the first time. Oh, it's great. And it's fantastic. Oh, it's an amazing film. Absolutely brilliant film. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, it's not. It's not my go-to. No, it's it, it's not something that can you know that I really uh, you know I I'd rather listen to the replacements than uh, Rachmaninoff. Yeah, I mean, like just as a little disclaimer for any potential orchestra players out there, you know, like I'm no expert on any of this either. Like uh, I know a little bit of Grieg here and there, but if it's not, this set is quite to... simple stuff though. This isn't that complicated. I don't think this isn't that in- intellectual in that realm, is it? Like no, definitely not. This is going to be. Well, we'll discuss who it's going to be later, but, you know, this is just going to be generic score for a movie that isn't based around the score. Like, this isn't going to be Inception or anything like that, where, you know, it's going to heavily rely on musical cues and stuff. Film scores, though, I know a bit bit better. I've started collecting film score on vinyl now, which is a really fun endeavour. What are some of your favourite film scores, though? Jesus. I mean, there's a question. Scores. Um, I really like the work of Alexandra Desplat. Mm. Um, so I, I really like Tree of Life. I think that's a fantastic score. Again, I like more minimal piano-led scores. Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, I think they do incredible work. Um, I love the Proposition score with John Hillcoat, The Road with John Hillcoat. Jesse James, um, so yeah. Jesse James is probably the best one there. Um, I love uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, their work. Um, oh, the Social Network soundtrack is ridiculous. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Ghosts. Dragon Tattoo, well. yeah. Dragon, yeah, yeah. They're geniuses. Gone Girl had some great stuff on it as well. Uh, what else do I like? Johnny Greenwood's fantastic. Johnny Greenwood is another good one, yeah. Uh, you know, quite a lot of Michael Giacchino. He's a little smaltzy, 
But um, his uh, his Super 8 score, I think the Super 8 main theme is, is pretty stirring, actually. Out to the Tron Legacy soundtrack by Daft Fantastic Punk. Fantastic well. soundtrack, yep, Daft Punk, love that as well. Uh, well, no, that's a score, sorry. In terms of, like, soundtracks, like, more jukebox movies. Sure. Um, you've got, like, Pulp Fiction, you've got Trainspotting, Goodfellas. Then even more recently, you had Joker, which was a weird example, because that had both an amazing score by Hilda something, something, something. I really can't pronounce her second name. Uh, she did the score for Chernobyl as well, which was great. But then you've also got the soundtrack playlist along with it, you know, with yep. all the Gary Glitter songs and stuff like that, which was also quite interesting as well. But we shall move on to the film itself now. And for the benefit of this conversation and the people at home, I am just going to read a brief synopsis. Mm-hmm. Though, like all reviews, please, if you're mildly interested in the in in this film, go out and watch it first. You know, spoilers abound, henceforth, blah, blah, blah. The Family Way details the struggles of young newlyweds Arthur and Jenny Fritton. Basically, their honeymoon is cancelled, so they're forced to shack up with Arthur's parents. Because of this apparent lack of privacy, they are unable to be intimate and consummate the marriage. And then through a series of unfortunate events, things kind of escalate for the couple. Their marriage is put to the test, their relationships with their parents are put to the test, and it's all at risk of judgment from the gossipy townsfolk. Tom, just to confirm something, and I know this is going to sound horribly revealing for me about my personal life, but the plot for this whole film is one big euphemism for erectile dysfunction, right? No, I don't think so. No. (laughs) I didn't didn't really see that. I, I, I saw it more as a struggle of self-definition, you know, because Arthur and his dad are at complete polar opposites, aren't they? And, you know, it's interesting to see Arthur's brother, who's a bit more of a prototypical man's man, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to kiss his sister, his sister-in-law, towards the end. I mean, there is that to a certain extent, and, you know, it was kind of refreshingly ribald and progressive for its time. Like, you know, I want to say straight up, I really did enjoy this film. I'm really happy that I watched this movie. And um, again, there's something so charming that it's 1966 and it was filmed mostly on location in Lancaster and it, it felt very authentic. Um, it doesn't really feel grittish, which is which is a, a term that I've coined, by the way, anyone listening, gritty British cinema, grittish. And it's kind of hard to imagine this world existing, which of course it did, at the same time as Bohemian McCartney and Revolver and, you know, they, they feel mm-hmm. quite dis- dis- disparate worlds. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I, you know, I had a riot watching this really. And yeah, it is kind of, you would think on the face of it, the story where they don't consummate and things keep getting in the way and it had a certain uh, carry-on aesthetic to it. But it was quite searching and, and, and poignant, actually. And mm-hmm. their love was, was very true. And, but I think the best characters in the film are the parents. Uh, the, the dad in particular, I thought was brilliant. Oh, he is fantastic. He's I, really I, good. What was his name? John Mills. I know he's quite a famous British actor. He knocked out of the park. I appeared in more than two, 120 films in a 70-year career. Um, he died at the age of 97, that guy. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Like, like, he just plays your expectations so well as an actor. Like, You think he's going to be this real Andy Cap type, and then you just get these these real subtle uh, plots that almost never never get resolved there's a, a side a side plot with the mom and his brother billy that we never quite 
get answers. It was his for. friend. Was it? Was it? Was it his brother or was it his it friend? Was, it was. It was his brother, and he seems yeah. to have been very close to his wife at one point, and then he mm-hmm. suddenly goes suddenly goes missing, and the son looks a little like him. It's all very uh, kitchen sink drama, but it doesn't have the kind of melodrama that you'd expect of a sixties film. It, it was his friend, by the way, Billy. I just wanted to. Oh, it, oh, yeah, because uh, he's called friend. Billy Stringfellow. Yeah, but they, he, you know, and um, you think it's exploring it in one way in a homoerotic way but i don't really think it suggests that but but yeah there's lots of um there was the, there was that and then there was the affair angle as well which... there was that and he disappears straight after and you know he's because when they're because because there's a lot of fun stuff that happens so you know the marriage is happening and then afterwards they they have the sort of you know the the night out as it were and it's just great to see like in, in true 60s fashion like them drinking beer from all these casks and all the, all the women are drinking ale beer and smoking cigarettes it's fantastic isn't it yeah yeah it is it is and uh, and you know there's a, a, a nice sequence as well when they all go back uh, to the house obviously uh, what is it arthur and uh, tilly right the girl's called tilly and 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 they want to they want to get back and do the deed as it were but everyone else goes back as well for a nightcap and then the father and son face off in we would call it an arm wrestle they call it the elbow game now, which dude, i'm just, I've got to say, this is the one scene that I did want to point out specifically. Like, <laughs> I can't believe that these 20-somethings don't know what an arm wrestle is, which is just hilarious as a little point. Yeah. But like, when the father and son are like, duking it out and their eyes meet, they have this like blink-and-you'll-miss-it interaction, and it is truly amazing cinema. It is. And... His acting, the dad's acting. And he says afterwards, doesn't he? He says, like, when I looked at him for a bit there, I, I saw Billy or something. Like, yeah. yeah. Nice drama. Really nice drama. It takes advantage of the of film as a medium, though, which I did appreciate. Like, obviously, this is an adaptation of the uh, play "All in Good Time" by yeah, Bill, Bill Norton. Norton. He, dude, he he fucking did Alfie. Like, this is like uh, prestige pedigree here. Yeah, and. The fact that we're able to have the close-up and see that the son obviously can see that the father's weak and he's going to lose. And you see the son make the decision in his head without any dialogue. Mm-hmm. And and, this, uh, and the strength in that uh, concession, isn't there? There's, there's yeah. deep resolve, yeah. Because the son's very arty and the dad's a factory man and, yeah. Oh, it tells you so much about the, about, about the character's, you know, but whilst, whilst doing so dull. And I can't imagine how it would have been done better on stage, if mm. I'm honest. Mm, no, the close-ups were masterful, yeah. Yeah, and there's, like, you know, nice use of mirror and stuff. Um, there's also a lot of chances where they take the plot outside. Like, like you can tell that probably a lot of the original scenes are just taking place in this cramped indoor single, you know, stage mm-hmm. set. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whilst it isn't anything special with the framing or anything, there is a variance of setting, and we do get to see the vistas of Lancaster, which are very nice as well. The directors are... are well, direct producer duo brothers. They're a bit like um, Joel Ident- and Ethan Cohen. Twins, actually, they are uh, John yeah. and Ray Bolting. Yeah, and like I, I think, I think because of unions and stuff like that, they can't both be credited. But they actually did the original Brighton Rock back in 1947, oh which is God, absolutely mad as yeah. well. Oh, the, uh, the the have you seen that film? No, but I've seen the remake with Helen Mirren quite oh, shamefully. Yeah, not not so great. But um, oh yeah, no. I mean, the, the end. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they have it in the remake. But do they have the scene where he makes the record at the end? Yes. Yeah. When he gives the message. Oh, such such beautiful, beautiful writing. But um, but yeah, I love this. And like you know, it is funny. Yeah, I, I, I'm like I'm, I'm a person that doesn't really laugh out loud at like uh, comedy films and stuff like that. But I was smiling throughout. I thought it was witty. There was a there was a sequence that I felt was almost very Simpson esque where. <laughs> 
they're, you know, they know that the effort of the world is upon them, that they have to consummate. And they're walking through at night and seemingly the whole world is fucking and kissing. Oh, and you like mean adverts and yeah, yeah, all of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much like a sequence in The Simpsons when Homer will have a montage of advertisements exactly. like bombarding him and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that goes back to like the naked gun and police squad stuff. That you absolutely, know, that, yeah, that a lot kind of, of visual gag upon visual gag. Yeah, but I mean, dude, like you are a you know a fan of puns. Obviously, you host a pun podcast, and this is a film bursting at the seams with double entendres, puns, double meanings, euphemisms, and. If you know the British lingo, there is so much, you know, for you to absorb here. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, the, the, the very title itself is is a euphemism, right? Yeah, yeah. the very title means to be pregnant, to be mm-hmm. in the family way. Family way. Rather interestingly, like, to kind of contrast that, the film itself is a film about people not saying stuff. And it's all about how people are very, like, you know, repressed. And the societal and sexual repression that the characters are under is, like, almost incomprehensible as a guy sat here some 50, 60 years later. It does, at points, veer close to one of those plots where it's like, "Mm, if they just spoke about their feelings for five minutes, this would kind of be resolved. It was 60s England. That just wasn't done back then, unfortunately. Yeah, it was. Because yeah. uh, the swinging 60s were happening elsewhere. Like, this is just, this is Billy Elliot land. You know, I know, I know it's a bit afterwards, but it just, yeah, it does have that kind of stifling, kind of uh, suffocating nature. That was one of the criticisms of the film, that it was kind of away from swinging London and stuff like that. But I really enjoyed that, actually. I really mm. enjoyed seeing, seeing you know, elsewhere England, that, you know, this is the kind of England that the Beatles were changing. Yeah. My experience watching it for, for the first time, though, was a little different for me. I did find kind of the first half to be a little bit slow and kind of it, it kind of lacked a bit of a bit of pace but like you say when it gets to the second half that's when all those barriers come down and the issues do start being like faced head on and then so much starts happening and like you say it it does become very very poignant and it was a lot weightier than i was expecting because it kind of veers into more like rom-com territory in in the first half mm. and so so many things that i you know i noticed but didn't kind of pay attention to had payoffs especially with the the father figure and how he helps out his son in the end like that was that was just picture perfect yeah the ending is terrific actually yeah it seems like every movie from the 60s ends with someone crying in the front room and the camera panning out like that's such a common way to conclude drama (laughs) yeah yeah but it worked actually i thought it was quite wonderful because obviously he mm-hmm. he sees a lot of Billy in his son, and maybe Billy's the far Billy the father. Yeah, like, I kind of thought know. that. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. But it was all it was all very tastefully done. Actually, like it wasn't on the nose, even though it was from the sixties. Had the trappings of that time. You know, we're a long way from Christopher Nolan's Memento. There was no real playing with any narrative here. But I just kind <laughs> of reveled in just the the authenticity of it for the most part. And there are some nice excursions out where uh, the brother has a dirt bike race that, that's kind of exciting. Yeah, um, and I loved all the gossiping ninnies as well in there, you know, putting their washing out and how word spreads and stuff like that. Well, like that is the main selling point for me as well. Like this is, uh, to quote a, an off-use phrase, a, a, a time capsule for a, a very specific place in, like even like beyond our parents' generation, really. Yeah, no, our, our parents would have, yeah, they would have been children, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have been. They wouldn't have even been Arthur's age. So yeah, especially the sexual politics of the film. The final scene of the movie, like the conclusion of all of this tension, it essentially boils down to 
Arthur gets so angry at his at his wife because he feels like she's been uh, chatting gossip about their sex life behind his back, and he gets all riled up, and him getting all angry, and mm. essentially them having a violent scuffle, and him pinning her to the bed. That's what gets him a boner, and that's when they fuck. Not sure that really fits 2020 guidelines on protagonists, but um, it was certainly an interesting end. I felt like it would be a bit more of a rum-pa-bum-bum kind of ending on the stage. And there were quite a few things in the, in, in, in the film that stood out to me where I was like, oh, may, maybe here in the play live, there was some sort of pause or form mm. of audience interaction. And some of it didn't seem quite as seamless. But there is a nude scene in the film, though. As nude as a 1960s British film could be, you know, you get a little bit of bum cheek. And there's a review from the time that, like, talks about how the actress playing kid was, like, really daring to do that. And I was like, my gosh, that guy's never going to see Brown Bunny, is he? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that was... She was a Disney girl, Hayley Mills. Yeah, so, no, she was, she was a very... Uh, Pollyanna and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, pristine, good girl image. I'm I'm sure it would it would be akin to... Nelly Furtado doing Maneater or something like that, but you know, yeah. Tom, overall, a pretty decent flick, I guess. Really I guess good. you'd say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really enjoyed this, and it's kind of like in in a smug way for me. I'm filing away in my brain because it's an obscure British film that I now know that, that like might come up because McCartney's associated. My God, and there is another reference to this in pop culture, Sam. I, are you you're not really a Smiths guy, are you? I don't. Know I saw it on IMDb. I saw. Yeah. I saw that, like, so what? There's a still from this film that's used to cover one of their singles? On two of their singles, yeah. So the Smiths are quite famous where the front covers of their, you know, of their their discs or whatever would normally be black and white stills from, like, kitchen sink dramas, and it was all kind of enshrining that inertia of the old British working-class dramas, stuff like that. Mm. And, uh, yeah, on... I started something I couldn't finish. There is uh, a still of the mother, Avril Angers, and then on um, Stopping for This One Before, which is an amazing song by the band, is um, uh, the the brother, Arthur's brother, Jeffrey. It's just a still of him there. Nothing particularly, like, striking about those, and you never necessarily know that's where they came from, but I just think that's a cool little link. Like I, I like the fact that Morrissey and Ma were referencing this movie. Totally. I did like how th- there is that subplot that, that uh, you brought up earlier, where, like, the brother does lean in to kiss... He does? What an asshole! And I was thinking, yeah, fuck you, asshole. But I did like how the film kind of knew that we all thought that she was probably going to kiss him back, and then she doesn't. And that was very satisfying, I thought. I really really did like that. Yeah, which is Um, why I think it's less about... the boneness of it. I think she just wants Arthur to be comfortable in himself. She's clearly fallen in love with him. He says earlier on in the film, I think he says like, I identify more with Beethoven than my dad, or I know more about Beethoven <laughs> than my dad and stuff like that. So yeah, that, that was very sweet as well. And um, they were pretty believable. And he, he looks like the archetypal sixties, like 19 year old. Like they all kind of look the same. Like, yes, they all look like that one guy from cemetery junction, the Ricky uh, Gervais yes, film. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. This film also had a great opening line and a great closing line, which I thought was quite in, in, interesting. Um, the opening line's quite racy. Um, it's like, once upon a time, there was a virgin. And even I was like, ooh! I was mm-hmm. like, okay, mm-hmm. this is this is going to be quite quite saucy. And then the final line, which I loved, it was so like Ken Loach. Uh, it was like, what's wrong, Dad? And he goes, it's life, son. At your age, he'll make you laugh, but when you get older, he'll make you bloody crap. <laughs> Yeah, and I was yeah. like, "That's so, that's mm-hmm. so kitchen sink, fantastic." Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like you yeah. say, it it just pans out from from the lounge. You know, it's so 
<laughs> it's so royal family-esque it's great it really is it really is actually and uh you know people listening like i know you're listening for paul but uh yeah seek this film out i think you know in the lockdown expand your tastes and it's very enjoyable like i i didn't even I, like i can see what you're saying about the first half being a little slow but for me i kind of i kind of reveled in that i think the performances across the board are very good performances are absolutely fantastic the direction's pretty functional and you know as we're going to discuss shortly the music's all right as well. Would you recommend this to, to anyone outside of Beatle fans, though? Like, genuinely? Yes, I would. I would, actually. Okay. Yeah, I think if you're into that kind of, you know, you mentioned, you know, Loach, like if you're into that sort of Kez, this is England kind of work. Again, the film isn't that gritty, really, to be honest with you. Like, everyone seems quite wealthy. The house is quite nice, actually, that they live in and stuff like that. <laughs> and they have a big party and, you know, they're, they're doing all right in their lives. But, um... But 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 yeah, I, I think it, like I say, I think I mean, do you, do you agree with me that it's better that, that that it's better than Paul's music, or do you think Paul's music is better than the film? Oh no no, um, I, I I think we've reviewed the film first as a way to stall from talking about the album. Okay. If, okay. if I'm if I'm completely honest. But yeah, I mean, friends of ours, you know, like Danny, for example, wouldn't have the slightest interest in this movie. I'm certain, but you know, other people that we know and respect, I think I think would enjoy it because, like you say, you know, it, it's very competently put together, and the dad in particular. I want to come back to the dad. I think he gives a knockout performance. No, he really is fantastic, and. I can't believe there was no Oscar nomination for him, really. There must have been I mean, yeah, I mean, other stuff going on that year. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, so, I'm surprised. I'm, you know, I'm surprised Pixar haven't adapted this for a future thing, but maybe. I, dude, I could see this being, being remade. Uh, and it actually has been remade in, like, Hindi, I believe. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. like, like 40 years later or something like that. <laughs> Let's get on to the album itself, though. Right. You know what, we'll get into the individual composition shortly, but Tom, what was your overall broad impression of the Family Way soundtrack? Yeah, I, you know, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I was very excited to listen to this from the off. I mean, um, it's the actual thing that you can listen to online on Spotify as a CD, the vinyl, whatever you want to buy, is 26 minutes. Bit misleading, though. There's basically two or three themes and melodies <laughs> that get construed and light you know, motifs. Yeah. yeah. They get, some of them get warped on top of each other. And so, so the main theme from the family way, which is kind of a cross between funeral dirge and pepperland parping is decent, but it doesn't, Okay, these aren't pop songs on the radio, so it doesn't necessarily have to exhibit that killer instinct that Lennon and McCartney had for a hook every four bars kind of thing. And you can just kind of languish in it. You know, there's a kind of grandiose element to it. I wasn't disappointed, but I wasn't, like, blown away. I, I you know, I, 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 I don't want to say he could have done better because I, I don't want to be rude because I still enjoy mm. the music. But, I mean, what, what, what about you? You know, you know the guy's music more. Like, do you think this is quite up to his par or? Well... I mostly know George Martin purely for his work with the Beatles. I've listened to a couple of his albums that he's done, like where he's like covered Beatle music, like he did an album called In My Life, for example. Yes. Um, honestly, I went into this with an open mind, but after five minutes, I could just tell that the spark wasn't there, folks. I'm really sorry. It's like one of those first dates where you know you're just not going to get along with this person, no matter how much you force it, no matter how charming you are. Obviously, this whole thing is very competently put together. It's George Martin, duh. Mm-hmm. But for me, the more interesting directions and moments, and there really are moments, that 
this album goes into are always far too short for me and then we're left with the lion's share of like you say the repetitions of these motifs and themes over and over and over again now i mean this is probably the main issue with instrumental scores if you like this kind of thing if you like the theme if you like the melody then you'll like the rest of the album but if you don't connect pretty immediately then it's going to be a bit of a slog for you and it was a bit of a slog for me and even if you do like it you might grow a bit bored of it by the end because we have the main theme of the family way you know there's a there's a kind of electric guitar take on it which is something like the ventures the shadows and there's quite a nice towards the end piece um which is almost like a a finger style piece um the guitar's quite trebly Mm -hmm. with the horns on top but yeah people i mean it's it's like what is it like uh, 14 tracks as it were but they're all cues aren't they they're, they're all called like 5m1 and 6m4 is that like scene titles i don't really know why they're called that i was really hoping that you being the musical guy would know the music yeah they don't really I, I guess that's what it is they're just cues aren't they like i think m is movement so like yeah. 7 m3 would be like seventh movement third scene Maybe. Maybe. I mean, um, it's not, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's not like as well that it's a very overpowering score or it even takes center stage in the film. Like I watched the film prior to really listening closely to the score, thinking okay. that certain things would stick out and then I oh, look forward to hearing this and hearing that. But aside from the main theme, which we get in the intro scene when they're, you know, they're in the uh, going down the aisle and stuff like that, uh, there aren't that many moments, are there, in the film where the score sticks out? Yeah, like having listened to the soundtrack several times beforehand, I was like expecting to have to get like a notepad out to write down all the times it, it appeared in the film. And all of the parts are quite obvious. All the contemporary stuff tend to happen in nightclubs, you know, mm-hmm. in that kind of diegetic oh, yeah. way. And then the kind of grander stuff is used for all the establishing wide shots. And then the main theme, like, like, like I say, is pretty much only used to set the stage, as it were. There's a lot more, there's a lot of incidental music that we, we don't get on the soundtrack as well that's also in the film. And the rest of it's silent. So probably only about 30-40% of the actual film uses any of this score whatsoever. What I did enjoy, though was the contrast between the score and the environments that the characters did exist in. Mm. Not putting down working-class Lancashire or anything like that, but <laughs> right. it's quite... It's, it's a working-class area, you know. They don't it know is, what a trumpet is. I mean, we can say that quite safely, yeah. You know, it is what it is. These these are characters that put red sauce on everything and, you know, aspire to be a foreman at coal mines. You know, these this is this is the world we exist in. And it's not gritty, like you say, but it is quite earnest and down to earth. And yet we, we have this incredibly resplendent and grandiose score to like contrast against it. Maybe that's Arthur, though, isn't it? He he is that way amongst the sea of mm. you know kind of more pragmatic people. He you know he does aspire to those worlds and those leanings. But you are right. The juxtaposition. I didn't really consider the parallels, but it is quite nice that they go together. And it's almost comedic as well. It plays up that aspect of it as well, you know. Mm. It's this regal theme set to, you know, row after row after row of tenement flats and stuff like that. Yes. Let's address the elephant in the room, the the uh, Kevin Spacey-level open secret that <laughs> George Martin essentially ghost-produced, ghost-wrote the whole thing, except for, like, a couple of snippets from McCartney. And mm. after listening to this album yourself, was that something that stood out to you as immediately obvious? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I'm not as, you know, as someone who loves the Beatles and knows George's orchestral work, it did feel 
very kind of you know bbc night of the proms kind of thing it had that wide <laughs> vista and that expanse it lacked the busyness and the energy uh, and the buzz of mccartney that, that he can explore in his own dynamic way so um yeah it did feel that way and i mean you know, for purposes of the episode, I'm joining you. I haven't heard what you said before, but from what I gather, the accepted opinion is that Martin did most of this, right? Yeah, so the the story broken down is just he threatened McCartney to do the whole thing himself if he didn't give him something to work with, and then Paul kind of quickly bashed out a couple of the themes that, that we hear today, but McCartney probably didn't even arrive at most of the sessions. He, he, he doesn't appear on the record outside of apparently being the writer. But... The Beatles story is chock-a-block with times where George Martin just does a load of uncredited work. I mean, Paul got an Ivan Novella award for this album. Mm. And yet he probably did fuck all for it. And George Martin, the loyal fifth Beatle that he is, sits there patiently and silently. And, you know, the fact that Paul has never really talked about this work since is probably an, an, an indicator of that. We're not going to get a reissue, are we, like Flaming Pie? Could you imagine? I mean, it's not like there's probably any, like, hidden tapes that like people are, like, dying. Like, oh, there's, like, 18 like unreleased tracks from the family way that we yeah. really want to hear. Apparently one of them's about Denny Lane. He hadn't even met him yet. It's mad. <laughs> there's an obvious, like, lack of effort or care in this project on McCartney's part. And for a workaholic like him, I, I found that quite shocking, actually. So... Mm. <sighs> Perhaps it's purely a contractual thing. Maybe they were just trying to use his name for marquee value and he knew that. That's why he probably just sent Martin a, a couple of musical doodles. Maybe like he, he kind of like said he'd do something and then realised how much work it would actually be. But there's a part of me where I kind of feel like, oh, John's going to act in a movie during this time. Like This is during the uh, two-month gap between Revolver and Sgt Pepper. John's going to star in How I Won the War. Well, I'm going to work on the music in film. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to keep it beatly, as it were. They're all big film fans, weren't they, as well? So you would have thought maybe it would have been more of a thrill. Uh, you know, I know how excited McCartney was when they were originally on that uh, My Bonnie single. And, uh, you know, to just... But they'd had their MBEs by this point, hadn't they? So they were already royalty to a certain extent. Like, Yeah. It's strange, though, because obviously we're going to see McCartney take direct control of the orchestra on stuff like A Day in the Life just on the next album so it's strange that he wasn't using this time as effectively as he could because like I thought this was going to be like that album that David Byrne and St Vincent did together where mm-hmm. it was basically just him teaching her how to use horns and I thought oh this is going to be the album where Paul kind of learns how to do orchestral stuff and whilst obviously anyone who's heard Paul's production, it's it's, it's pretty meagre and few and far between, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of George Martin, I, I, I mean, are you much of a Yellow Submarine Side 2 fan? No, not really. Don't really find that stuff interesting. I mean, you know, throughout here, there are some nice oscillating delicate strings. Uh, there's, there's a rise and fall to occasions. There is a professionalism and a, and a studiedness to it that I enjoy. But there isn't a variety of striking themes or motifs, unfortunately. And um, there's certainly not that, that, that Beatles quality that rings through it. You would be surprised if you're like, oh, this is actually Macca that's kind of meant to be the brainchild of this. As a showcase of his ideas, it's a little interesting. Thing, but you know it's just 
I don't know, some of the stuff I like, like there's one towards the end that feels quite creepy, crawly and kind of dancey and it's got Mm -hmm. this overriding melody. But just as you're enjoying something, a smattering of notes comes in. It's like, oh, this is the fucking Family Way theme again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Come on. I thought you were breaking new ground here. But, um, you know, staccato horn bursts reinterpret the theme, guitars reinterpret the theme, acoustic guitars, strings, etc. But, you know, it's not a musical at the end of the day. It is a film Mm. that's just stuffed with characters and dialogue. And uh, the songs get in where they can. Well, uh, rather interestingly, it's not the only Beatles soundtrack during their tenure either. And we couldn't couldn't talk about this album without the main contender of comparison, which is George Harrison's Wonderwall music for the film Wonderwall in 68. Mm -hmm. Obviously, even besides the obvious Oasis connection and influence... This film was a pretty big deal for a lot of people. I, I love Wonder Woman um, music, by the way. I think that's an yeah. amazing album. I mean, it, it, it absolutely trounces the family way. <laughs> like, this may come as a complete shock to our audience, but it won't come as a complete shock to you, dude. Like, up until yesterday, the day before recording this, I had never even given Wonder Woman music a cursory glance. Ah. And I've listened to the whole thing three times now already. Mm-hmm. And, and all I can say is that rather upsettingly, uh, it is infinitely far more interesting as a piece yeah. of craftsmanship and music and experimentation than this. And then, like you, you know, you've got all of the Eric Clapton stuff on the song "Skiing" and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it, it, it goes from vaudeville to like Prague and Raga, and whereas this is just kind of stuck on that one theme. Like, yeah, I mean, I know it's kind of comparing apples and oranges, but pun intended. <laughs> yeah, entirely. But like. The... This just seems like such a forced compositional exercise for McCartney, and you know you can kind of tell that there's 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 not the involvement or or the passion you want. I mean, dude, this really isn't an album that lends itself to a song by song. No, no, it isn't because unfortunately every song's kind of the same. Like, so it's it's kind of difficult to to go through that. I will say the the cover that's on Spotify where it's um, Arthur and Tilly and they're interlinked by the male-female gender. You've seen this cover, Sam, and it's green. Yes. I'd love a poster of that. There's something about it that I find quite evocative. And, it, and of course, it says at the bottom, music composed by Paul McCartney, which is a real eye-catcher. But he ain't the star of this one. Interestingly, the actual poster is much different. It's this kind of cream colour. Yes, I've seen that, yeah. And apparently there was a bunch of posters that they put out where it was just TFW... And everyone was like, whoa, what's this? And it was, it was kind of like, you, you know those orange advertisements where they just put up orange posters and people are like, what the hell's orange? Or, or like, or like Gabbo. Gabbo, yeah. Or, or even, you know, um, the cat's poster with just the two cats. I was like, what's this? Apparently they put up just loads of posters with TFW. Mm-hmm. And the poster says like, we hope you have all been seeing these funny little posters all around town. They were designed to alert you of the new motion picture, The Family Way. Now you know about the initials. We assure you understand the symbols. Not all motion pictures deserve this special kind of attention. You'll understand why once you see it. Yeah, the, the film is yeah interesting little mar- marketing campaign there. It kind of kind of links again to uh, Thrillington, the one we're going to be doing next right. next time, where M- McCartney dons a, a, a strange persona. Let's just run through these tracks really quickly. We start off with Q2M1-2M4. Uh, all of the tracks are going to be titled in this way. Mm-hmm. 
this is a very regal introduction to the soundtrack and and the movie it's kind of the main theme the main mm-hmm. light motif if if you will you mentioned that this is during the the wedding ceremony it works quite well though like it's got the build up and swell and anticipation of a wedding yes uh, and i kind of like that there was like a military feel to it with the drums Definitely. and it was maybe a bit of a foreboding omen to the audience as to mm-hmm. what's going to going to come on screen like like you said though, dude, get used to this theme. We're going to hear it a lot. Yeah. What we don't hear a lot on the album though are the really cool, distant, uh, kind of ethereal organs that that uh, break up this track. Like I really mm-hmm. like the uh, the the yeah the segues great ones, yeah because it's building and building a bit and then suddenly it's very low as well. That that is nice. I agree. Yeah, that's quite progressive. And then it you know this the rest of the song just indulges in that grand pompery that Martin does so well. Then next in second place we have five M one dash eleven M three. We're into the double digits now, folks. And uh, I don't know what the thing... hell these mean. Like <laughs> what they actually <laughs> mean. Like yeah. R two D two Liverpool yeah. one Manchester three. I, I I don't know what any of it is. This is going to be the, the first of like fragment compositions. Like we got two tracks that together only clock in under a minute. Um, yeah. With a pretty even split between the two. There's these very uh, like William Tell esque Rule Britannia brass horns at the mm-hmm. start and these very lush uh, string segments. Um, you know, kind of built for a myriad of sad scenes in the film. And then there's just going to be a lot of indifference from this point on because. A lot of these, if they're not repetitions of the theme, they're likely just to be these real incidental tracks that are just flat pack, made to order, that are meant to be put into a specific slot in a film that, whilst it works for the film, as a a solo musical piece on its own, it really doesn't stand on on its head, really. No, no, completely agree. And, you know, like we said before, it's kind of difficult really to do our typical dissections because there isn't that much here i suppose if there was to be a light and shade we do go from orchestral pieces to more guitar pieces and more Mm. kind of like stinging electric ideas but um yeah i mean there's just like you say it's just kind of it's it's difficult to uh you know put into words how uh, repetitive the family way is the soundtrack Third place is 6m47m2 that classic household name you all you all know it This is another one of those tracks that kind of blends themes together very effortlessly. Uh, you know, think of Uncle Albert or I've Got a Feeling. For the first 17 seconds of this, dude, we get this cod mariachi band, this like uh, kind of yeah. Western style that I, that I did like a lot. And then the second part, 
presumably that's the 7M2, that it shifts into this like slick guitar and bass riff that I did enjoy. I kind of wish more of the album was focusing on more guitar sounds. Maybe mm-hmm. Martin was definitely trying to stay away from that. I, I, I don't know how this is two tracks, because the mariachi horns kind of come back in at the end with the guitar stuff anyway, so maybe it should just be one song. But it's nice enough. 6M, 1M, 2... Yeah, this is more painfully British stuff. I was kind of expecting this to be a Downton Abbey, Jane Austen epic, based on what I was listening to before I saw the film. Do you reckon anyone listened to this album before they saw the film back in 66? Uh, no, and I mean, you know, from that review, apparently it was quite yeah. a rarity, as I say, but um, yeah. only the most, and we know there's a lot of them out there, so I'm sure some did, but only the most ardent of Beatles collectors probably gave it a spin. Yeah, it's like £200 on eBay now, bro. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, the majority of this track is a pretty standard affair. There is this kind of moonlight sonatory type segment that was quite enjoyable. Again, it's only like 20 20 seconds long, though. More pan flutes and acoustic guitar stuff. Then, like, out of nowhere, we have these final swelling horns and these swinging drum patterns, and it's kind of meant to act as this rousing part to presumably take us to another scene. But after such a like a mellow atmosphere, it kind of felt inappropriate and jarring, and it probably should have just been left off altogether. Then we have a, a song title made up of five parts, which is okay. Brace yourself, folks. We have ten M one dash six M three dash four M one dash one M three dash one M four. Yeah, this is the kind of Abbey Road medley of this album, just just not as memorable. No. We start off with this kind of mournful spaghetti western theme again. Very, very Hollywood. It's kind of it's kind of fitting again. Then it shifts to this orchestral violin stuff. Far too melodramatic for me. Luckily it's the shortest part. Then we get to this kind of hopeful, romantic uh, kind of flute and viola part with this classical guitar it's quite soppy i didn't i I didn't mind it personally Mm. the fourth movement actually kind of sounded like um simon and garfunkel's bookends album with that kind of intimate tender finger picking style yeah i really enjoyed that and then it rounds out with the most typical family way piece of the bunch it's just this you know energetic mashup with more jaunty rock sounds didn't particularly sound nice then we come on to love in the open air 
And interestingly, dude, I know you don't give a fuck about discussing vinyl album songs, mm. but as luck would have it, the actual vinyl copy of the Family Way soundtrack has no notation as to what's on what side. Good God. Which is, yeah, which is probably why it flows together in, in the way it does. But I'm guessing that this ends side one, just as, mm. as an aside. Um, rather interestingly as well, this was the A-side of the single, which was a bit of an odd choice for me. There was a single? Yeah, yeah, it was this. And then... Uh, on and then 7M249. That, yeah, that household name. No, uh, the B-side was just the theme from The Family yes, Way. Yes, of course, yeah. Don't you, don't you ever find it weird, by the way, that back in the day, people... Kids must have literally had hundreds of little pl- bits of plastic singles. They couldn't make playlists. Like, would, would you just go from one to the other to the other to the other and just play them again and again? Like, Well, my mum my always talks about my nan having this machine where you could rack up a bunch of singles. Right. Like, you, you couldn't do the A and the B side, but you could rack up, you know, 20 A sides sure. and they'd play all of them all at once. So there were ways around it, but, you know, there was no mixtape for your sweet pea. There was no, like yeah, yeah, there was no queuing tracks, like, yeah. There was no Spotify recommended for you. There was Napster, though, back then, right? In in the 60s, totally, yeah. No. Um, this is just an expansion of themes and ideas presented in the last song, so I'm not sure how this would have worked as a single either. It's getting very melodramatic and George Martin and like almost cloying. Mm. Uh, you, again, you can see where Paul's getting a lot of his style from. Then we've got 2M5... of the mid-60s rock and roll style that is a bit of a guilty pleasure for me on this album. Like, it is generic as fuck. Like, as you mentioned earlier, The Shadows, um, I've written here The Kinks or The Birds or, like, even, like, Billy Preston, stuff like that. You know, like, in the way that some people liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's the kind of way that I like this song, you know. It's just a feel thing for me. Okay. Following on, we have 1M1. song that I'm struggling to remember um, this one positive thing I will say about this one it does get pretty entertaining towards the end with how like immediately over the top epic it gets kind of out of nowhere but this is easily one of the more incidental pieces on the album like dude I'm all for repetition but 
for all of the variety we have on this album in terms of like style and approaches and instrumentation, it's just that same medley is just starting to wear me down at mm-hmm. this point. And, mm-hmm. and, and like, I don't know about you, but the problem with an album like this is that since there aren't many standout elements or kind of <laughs> lyrics to kind of break it, break it all up, I really find it hard unless I'm looking at my, my phone and seeing when one song goes to the next, like to actually discern when one song stops or starts. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, it's not intended for that sort of digestion, is it? It's just meant to be, uh, you know, background, so to speak, behind it. And um, but but yeah, yeah, they do kind of roll into one, but not really in a good way. Kind of in the way that you think the track's skipping almost because it just sounds so similar. Yeah, like this whole album is the definition of background music because you can put this album on, go and make a sandwich in the next room in the kitchen and kind of come back to the album and kind of still know where you are in terms of the progression of the narrative of the Mm -hmm. music. Then Then we have 7M1. very similar to the last rocker we had on here uh, even though it's half the length i kind of felt it had a bit more energy and vigor to it even though it is basically the, the kind of music you'd have in an austin powers movie yeah uh, it, baby <laughs> it, it, it is that kind of you know generic sound but for me there is something about that 60s hammond organ sound that is completely irresistible and we've got more of that kind of like on a psychedelic guitar sound that strays into the spaghetti western-esque themes we had from earlier then we have another quadro title track 11m1 11m2 10m3 am1 And despite being half the length of the last kind of multi-titled song, it was actually kind of harder to work out all the bits of this. Though the standout part was this kind of uh, bouncy bassline segment that reminded me of a kind of a spy TV theme or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really varied. It's kind of interesting. So yes. of course it only lasts about thirty seconds. Yeah, I remember that part as well. That's what I was saying earlier. The sort of creepy crawly sort of nature. Yeah, it has nice frob to it. Yeah. Then it goes to those familiar, familial violin movements. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the main chunk of the song. Again, very throwaway, just stuff we've heard before. Then it goes into this kind of despondent, Russian-sounding string movement. Uh, Very solemn, very peaceful. I thought that was quite cool. And then the last section, I'm guessing 8M1, is probably about two seconds, two bars of frantic, menacing cello lines, and that's it. 
Again, another quite fleeting moment from this album that did interest me before fading away completely. Yep, Martin's still blending all of these tracks seamlessly together. 12M1, the next track, was quite interesting for me, though, dude, because this was the first dramatic song on the entire album. Like, it was very... Chun, 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 chun. I was like, oh, uh-huh, gosh. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, it, it definitely woke me up a little, and it probably should have been placed a little earlier in the uh, track listing. Not that track listing's really a factor that affects this particular album. No, no it's, the script is the track listing, isn't it, really? You know, this track was a refreshing change of pace for me, with those kind of staccato cello strings. It's very classic Hollywood, almost like Hitchcock Psycho with music by Bernard Herrmann. Now, I bring up Bernard Herrmann, dude, because apparently the story is that Bernard Herrmann was actually asked to advise Paul on how to score this film. Ah, interesting. And instead of taking a fee, uh, the directors gave Herrmann a Marc Chagall painting instead. Wow. Yeah, in the same way that I'm sure Disney gave Robin Williams a Picasso for being the genie in Aladdin. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think Herman, in his definite style, you know, just go back and listen to, to uh, Psycho, had a definite influence on McCartney, at least for the opening half of this song. And then, as most of these songs tend to do about halfway through, it goes back to the bloody Family Way theme. Oh, yeah. More, more of that flute Hope you didn't aesthetic. miss me. I'm back. I'm back, baby. Following on, we got 13M1. placeholder track i like the guitar in this one though i do i think this one's a little more distinct than the others and i like the kind of trebly way the guitar's recorded the strings buzz almost gives it this kind of uh yeah quite resonance quite, yeah 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 resonance exactly but um i you know if you're going to reinterpret the theme at least go on to different instruments and uh this this is nicely played i did think this was paul but as it's not paul i'm not quite as impressed but um i, I still like this direction actually cannot remember this in the film at all if it even was in there Dude, about half of these songs I can't remember in the film. I will agree, though, that on a lot of the acoustic parts, I do feel like chucking Paul the benefit of the doubt bone a bit. Like, maybe he did have a little more work on these tracks, at least with the guitar parts, than we may perhaps give him credit for. Mm Mm-hmm. We also have some nice uh, oboes and woodwind in the arrangement at the start of this song that was also quite nice as well. It's weird you should bring up the guitar for this song, though, because he actually reminded me of the kind of John Williams-esque soulful guitar players that used to play to us at this restaurant. We frequented it in Spain many, many years ago. So maybe that's why this song struck a particular chord with me. Pun intended, intended. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a music podcast. I'm sure I've done it before. 
our penultimate tune is 13M2, which is the only tune on this album to be sequentially placed after the last one. <laughs> that's true, yeah, that's one. true. I was very interested in what this one was going to offer. And it, it, to be fair, it's a triumphant return to the true pompous brass band brilliance that we've known Martin to, to do on this album so brilliantly. Uh-huh. Maybe it's the comic playfulness that makes me feel that this is evocative of perhaps Yellow Submarine, Side 2, or even like the Abbey Road medley. Like the, There's a certain Beatle classicism, like classicism to this uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, Like. It is in that ballpark. Definitely not the same game. And I really did enjoy this track, actually. Like, I do appreciate that for the last proper song, Martin actually bothered to introduce a new me- like melody just before the end. Like, thank you for reminding us that you actually could. And the horns were really fun and dynamic. It was more of that nostalgic Britannia pride. And then towards the latter half, the track also has this really kooky little shuffle in its percussion section and this nice scratchy guitar part. And it's the closest to the album comes to giving you music where you could actually maybe bop your head to it, perhaps. Uh-huh. Again, this is one of those tracks that really highlights the hilarious grand scale of the score when compared to the, the plot of the final film. And I do appreciate that kind of ridiculousness. Now, the song I listened to first, back a couple of weeks ago when I thought about doing this, was Theme From The Family Way. It's called Theme From The Family Way. this to be something a little bit more than just taping two songs that we've already heard from this album together if you just take Q2M1 2M4 and then immediately play 13M2 after you get the theme from the family way and maybe it's possibly a a new recording of the mashup but to my ear I swear I can hear a cut even in the single version that you know you hear a and it's it's note for note identical. It's not like it's a bad mix or anything. Like you know, if you want to do a showcase of the two best movements on this soundtrack, then maybe this does that exact job. But they don't even vary up in like a final mix just to give you something a little bit unique or anything. Like we've had a lot of intertextuality and self referencing on this album, but 
this was a bit too far for me, really. I was a bit disappointed when I found out this was just two tracks glued together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just, and as a theme as well, it, you know, it's not going to go in the pantheon of classic movie themes, but it just connote that sense of grandeur and also kind of elegiac isolation. It, it, it does its job necessary as a piece of film music, I suppose. Well, I mean, can you repeat the theme to the family way for me right uh, now? It's Tom? like. I'm not. I can hear it in my head. I'm kind of. I'm struggling to replicate it. But yeah, it has stuck with me. Yeah, it has. I think that's like two M seven or something. There we are. Seven M two. That's seven M two. You idiot. Oh, so, oh, fool me, oh, egg on my face. But yeah, there we are, folks. That concludes 1966's The Family Way by Paul McCartney, by George Martin. And to sum it all up, I guess I'll say that this album, it is exactly what it says on the tin. You know, it's an orchestral George Martin album through and through. And whether or not you like it, you know, reviews really aren't going to sway it. It's just going to come down to taste at the end of the day, I feel. Maybe for me, this album had a particularly hard time since I've just started listening to Thrillington and I felt like that was so much more fun and engaging. But yeah, overall, this hasn't left the greatest impression on me at all. The film has. I totally agree with with you there, Tom. I was really glad that I was able to Mm -hmm. have this opportunity to see this film, like very much with our film series that we're doing on Down in the Hole. You know, doing these podcasts is just a great excuse to expand my media knowledge. Yeah. If I have to give this film an arbitrary rating uh, based on how much I actually enjoyed it, I'd probably give the film probably like a an 8 out of 10, 4 star, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, maybe 7 for me. Um, nothing against it. I just, I don't think it was like this, you know, I think because I'd seen Citizen Kane uh, just before, I was maybe yeah. preparing it. But, um, but yeah, 7, 8. Yeah, yeah, 4, definitely. Um, it certainly wasn't a bad film. It was very well made and uh, thoroughly enjoyable. The album, though, quite controversially, folks, I'm probably going to give it like a four, like a four and a half out of ten. If you want to go Rotten Tomatoes scores, like a 43%, if you want to be really accurate. Because, like, this just wasn't my thing. And I'm kind of glad that I did skip it all the way back in the day and just go straight to McCartney 1 and Ram and Wildlife. Really fun albums like that. And to be honest, I actually found the process of reviewing this album and looking it up and researching it to be to be quite a chore compared mm. to uh, Thrillington. I mean, normally we're supposed to do canon fodder for this segment, uh, but it, it really isn't a proper album in the sense that it really isn't Bob McCartney and it's not really part of the canon. It's very minor. So I think I'll just play it safe and add the theme from The Family Way to our ever-growing playlist, as it's already two of the fucking songs from the, from the soundtrack anyway. There's nothing else that stands out for you, particularly Tom, that you'd like to preserve forever in an ice vault somewhere. <laughs> uh, not, not especially. No, always a pleasure to come on the show, and uh, you know, I'm glad we spoke about this because, like we said before, I don't think any pod has ever covered this. Maybe Ken Michaels in a past life have a discussion on this, but uh, but yeah, people, go watch the Family Way, not for Paul, but uh, for Arthur and for Tilly and Arthur's dad as well. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, bro. Like this was really fun, as always. You know I love podding with you, be it here or pun it or down in the hole. How can people get at you and what have you got coming up in the future? 
Yeah, um, thank you, man. Uh, yeah, follow us on the various platforms that I'm on my podcast. I do a podcast about battle rap called Battle Rap Resume. I'm obsessed with battle rap competitive name calling. Um, so I've interviewed all the big names over there. Uh, Music-wise as well, Metallica. Uh, I cover Metallica over Alpha Metallica, as the name suggests. We went through every single Metallica song in Alphabet's Glory. We've now done that with about 160-odd songs with guests from around 30 countries. And currently, I'm just kind of going into topics and various foxholes that I find interesting with Metallica with guests. So we did like a big two and a half hour episode on their bass player. They're all bass player, Jason Newstead. James Hetfield, their main guy, was on Joe Rogan. So I reviewed that episode. Also, we did a, a five part series on their music. Videos yeah, yeah, well. exactly. Was, and you've been on a few times. Really so it's got songs as well. Uh, and yeah, um, upcoming episodes on there. We're going to do like history of Metallica stage designs. And Ooh. we're going to look. Metallica at Glastonbury as well in 2014. But yeah, check out Pun It. If you want to hear me and Sam discuss things on a regular weekly basis, it's a competitive wordplay game show. All the episodes are about 20, 25 minutes. They're very breezy. They're packed full of comedy and creativity. And I love doing them. And uh, by the time you hear this, most likely the episode will be out where Sam's a guest, I'm hosting, and we're doing Beatles puns. I honestly cannot wait to do that and I cannot wait to, to find out what the other category against Beatles will be. Will it be Leonardo DiCaprio films? Will it be colours? Will it be planetary objects? Who knows? But yeah, Tom, thank you so much for coming on, bro. Take care. Hey, thank you again. <laughs>